This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Julia Karkatsul. In today's episode, we turn our attention to Twitter. The modern public square is the place to catch up on news from every corner of the globe. Everything from COVID conspiracy theories, from Chinese Communist Party accounts, to your neighbour's dodgy lunch. And most recently, in a first for the platform, a place where former presidents are given the boot. Twitter is a vital tool in the journalist toolkit. They can share breaking news, post live updates on developing stories, find sources and engage with the public on pressing matters. The platform allows for the democratisation of news, enabling anyone to serve as an eyewitness to key events and post about it. Well, that's its intention, at least. Over recent years and ramping up in 2020, the democratisation of news has been pushed aside in the name of polarised and highly incensed debate, where two sides refuse to listen to one another, and where journalists get pummeled with criticism for simply trying to do their job. So can we return Twitter to its roots, or should we just give up all hope now? Well, joining me on the panel today are some journos very familiar with the current state of Twitter and who may be able to offer some answers. We have investigative reporter at Crikey, Amber Schultz, and joining us on the line from Melbourne are Stephen Brooke, a CBD columnist for The Age, and Rachel Baxendale, Victorian political reporter for The Australian. Hello. Hello. Thanks, Julia. Okay, so if you are a journalist, Twitter is a pretty invaluable tool and it's also a fun place to hang out and chat with other journos and bump into engaged news junkies, or at least it was five years ago. Um, Is Twitter still a good place for journalists to be in 2021? I'll start with you, Stephen. Simple answer, no. I think it has become corrupted and uh, poisonous. I think it at some point served as a very useful forum for journalists to exchange news and information. I think it has incre- increasingly slid into irrelevance, uh, triviality and nastiness. And I did write a column a week or so ago about this and 
was very interested in the number of people who came up to me, journalists, to say they're using the platform far less than they used to or they're off it entirely. In my job, when I've been at the age about six months now, and I used to find Twitter an invaluable source of news tips, which, of course, is the white bread of daily journalism. I'd say now that is not the case, Julia. I'm finding that more and more people are coming to me with information that's relevant to my column. I think that Twitter is increasingly less used in that most basic of journalistic things, news tips. I would say in olden days, it was quite a valuable source. I used to work at the Australian and write a media diary and you get a lot of information via Twitter. Now it's direct via email from people who read the column and have got something they want to say about Melbourne and the locality that they live in. And they're just coming to me directly. They're cutting out this platform, communications platform, Twitter entirely. That's interesting. Um, Amber and Rachel, what are your thoughts on, on Twitter in 2021? Look, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I still think it has its place. And we, we have seen new t- news tips um, come through Twitter recently with Bridget McQuinsey's latest squeeze was one. Um, but I do agree it is becoming increasingly polarised. And I think recently we have seen a rise of trolls as well. Twitter in Australia is really only used by media fanatics and journalists. It's it's quite different to the rest of the world where you know most of the population is on it. But in Australia, it's really just us. Um, And we have seen more and more people, you know, go on Twitter, especially during the pandemic, I think, just simply to troll one another. And, you know, we have this kind of direct access to politicians and to journalists that I don't think people really had before. um, And they're using that not necessarily for good. I'd agree with what both of you other two have said. I I, I guess I see Twitter as a bit of a double-edged sword. I think it has got much worse. Uh, I I think during the lockdown, possibly, um, I think partly because people are locked at home with nothing else to do uh, to some extent. Uh, I think that it is a group of you know, media and political people and then extremists at both ends of the ideological spectrum who are basically just there to to troll people. Uh, I do still find it very useful. I think covering the lockdown in Melbourne in particular, but COVID more generally and even state politics more broadly, uh, it does sort of provide an opportunity for members of the public and I have had lots of pretty normal people get in touch with me through Twitter a lot of people who said that they weren't even on Twitter but they joined so they could send me a private message about you know being stuck in hotel quarantine or whatever it was Uh, so I do still find it a really useful tool but it's also uh, I I do find that I have to just not read a lot of my mentions a lot of the time Um, I've become a lot tougher about that I suppose mentally uh, because I was getting a lot of death threats and rape threats and you know just horrible um, bits and pieces that you know I I don't really think it's anyone's in 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 anyone's interests to have to deal with in a workplace Uh, so absolute double-edged sword it has its advantages but used with care I guess is is where I land on it. So, Rachel, you kind of alluded to it just then, but, um, yeah, I guess it's safe to say you've had a pretty rough time on Twitter uh, over the course of 2020 and into 2021. And it started with you pushing Dan Andrews in one of his presses uh, to disclose who in his government was responsible for the hotel quarantine failures. You spoke about mandatory mask wearing as well. Um, And you were flooded with criticism, as you say, death threats on social media, Um, what was that experience like for you? I understand you went off the platform entirely. Uh, 
I, I, I went off the platform just briefly just because there was, you know, such a deluge of stuff. And to be honest, what was most annoying was just the kind of misinterpretation of, you know, of, 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 of me doing my job. I mean, the mandatory mask stuff was just bonkers. I was portrayed as some kind of crackpot who opposed masks, which is absolutely not the case um, as a result of the fact that I had simply asked a question about, you know, whether they were necessary in um, in a particular situation. I don't actually remember the details, but I think I was talking about, you know, whether or not we should have to wear them, you know, in, in regional areas where we might not be in contact with, you know, any other human being um, where there hadn't been a COVID case for a very long time. Because um, I think there were situations where people were being asked to wear them where, you know, the health benefits were probably questionable. Um, and I think, you know, as a journalist, it was a question worth asking. Um, I wasn't actually, um, as far as I was concerned, uh, putting a view out there um, on on what I thought of, 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 of on masks at all, uh, let alone you know trying to suggest that I was opposed to them. Uh, but you know the the internet has a mind of its own sometimes, and people people sometimes you know there is I think there has been a bit of a an orchestrated campaign, and I still don't know who a lot of the people are. I think that's one of the most annoying. Um, things about Twitter is that there are these anonymous people, and some of the some of the I stand with Danners are people who you know um, who who are recognisable people who who hold the views that they hold. I think others of them are sort of anonymous people who've been orchestrating a bit of a campaign, and sometimes it's quite a dishonest campaign. Uh, and I don't really, yeah, really understand what what they what they think they're achieving. I'll just jump in and pay tribute to you, Rachel, publicly for the way you handled yourself during that horrible period of abuse just for doing your job. I'm continually shocked by the amount of abuse that female journalists in particular have got to put up with uh, high-profile television journalists, a lot of abuse, highly sexualized, uh, and some journalists feel trapped. They have to be on this platform to do their jobs, but the cost can be very great. And I think as a society, we're going to look back in 10, 20 years and just think, why were we tolerating such horrible, abusive behaviour? Look, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that, Stephen. I, I don't know, I'm slightly embarrassed about it, but uh, I, I guess you make the point. I'm certainly far from the only one. I think, sadly, you know, the vast majority of journalists, and I think you're right that there is a particularly, and sometimes it's from other women towards women too. It's not, it's not just, you know, simple kind of um, women hating men. Um, and, yeah, there is just this nasty streak of... Um, of, of misogyny um, and nastiness that no one should have to deal with at work. And sadly, most, I think, you know, there would be very few journalists in general, female journalists in particular, who, who haven't had to put up with it at some stage. Yeah, I mean, Lee Sales is another high-profile journalist who's been targeted on Twitter and who's spoken about it. Um, Amber, would you agree that do you receive quite a lot of engagement, uh, negative engagement from users uh, that tend to be more misogynistic or, or anything like that? Absolutely, and, and definitely not at the scale of, of Rachel, fortunately for me and unfortunately for Rachel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is really interesting when you, 
when I have received these kind of threats or these messages, it is incredibly gendered. It, it always is and always will be, I think. Um, but it always comes from the followers that are from the people that have a fake username and have a very, very small amount of followers, which really to me kind of, you know, begs the question, one, should we be allowing anonymous users on Twitter? And two, you know, whether this is one person with 10 or 20 accounts attacking me, whether there are actually a huge number of people who dislike what I say, it's um, it's interesting, but it's it's certainly got this huge gendered element to it that that men just don't experience to the same extent. And uh, turning back to you, Rachel, um, a lot of it is personal, I guess, but then a lot of it is uh, your affiliation. A lot of the criticism you get is about your affiliation with The Australian and Murdoch Media as a whole. And you've said before that you, you're determined to be nonpartisan. Um, but how do you respond to these those kinds of attacks? I find it really annoying. Um, I've worked at the Oz for, for eight years. I've worked with a really wide variety of colleagues from a really wide variety of ideological perspectives. Uh, I think that's one of the strengths of the paper and I hope it's something that will always be here. I don't really see myself as following any particular line. I was accused of, you know, somehow following some editorial line or somehow... Uh, you know, waging some kind of campaign against Daniel Andrews and the questions that I was asking at press conferences, which I just regard as nonsense. You know, most of the questions were, were some of the questions were things I came up with, you know, in the press conference. It was actually quite rare for me to be, you know, it's part of your job and you quite often sent questions um, to ask that, that editors want you, you to ask at any media organisation that didn't actually happen all that much in, in those press conferences. Uh, I generally sort of uh, knew what I thought were, you know, the questions that needed to be asked. Um, so I guess I just think it's a lazy ad hominem um, attack, um, to be honest, uh, that really is often waged by people who don't actually know that much about me or my work and often, you know, have barely read an article I've written. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm really, like, I think it's very important for, um, for journalists to face criticism uh, and, and I'm always happy to take it on board if I think it's considered and, and, and reasonable uh, and it's put forward respect, respectfully. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I do kind of find uh, the, you know, the, the, the labelling of me um, as, you know, some particular type of journalist because people have opinions about where I work, um, pretty unfair. Sure. And what do you think uh, the role of your employer is in terms of like a duty of care to protect you on social media? Oh, look, it's a tricky one um, and it's a really difficult one. Um, you know, to some extent I value the fact that, you know, I, I kind of have the freedom to decide um, how much I use Twitter and whether or not I use Twitter at all, you know, and, and if I'm, you know, if I'm having time off or whatever, I just delete it for a while and don't look at it. Um, I have, I, I have a separate account that, um, that, that follows people I need to follow, but doesn't sort of have any followers so that I can sort of just look at Twitter without sort of seeing all the nastiness and mentions, even when things get completely crazy. Um, so I guess I kind of have just felt that I've had to take responsibility for that aspect of things. You know, there probably, there probably are extents to which, um, employers should be considering, 
uh, that aspect of things. But um, yeah, it's not something I've actually given a whole lot of thought to. I've kind of just sort of, yeah, thought about what I needed to do to, to protect myself and keep doing my job. Okay. And um, Stephen, do you think media companies should expect their journalists to have a social media profile if doing so is hurting their mental health? I don't think they should require that. And I think that we are seeing a real policy change that is underway now. Gavin Morris, who is the head of the ABC's news division, in the past couple of months has come out and said, "And look, you don't need to feel it's compulsory to be on social media if you don't want to. Whereas before, I think it was a real maybe unspoken, but requirement for journalists at all organisations to be on Twitter and to have a social media presence and to engage and to enter into debates and maybe to retweet or tweet out uh, your stories and output. So I think there's a definite change there. I think um, more needs to be done in that way. And I think long ago, actually, the Australian where I used to work and I can endorse and echo Rachel's comments about criticism of that paper often being made by people who aren't consumers of it. So don't read it, don't read the stories the journalists produce, don't really understand News Corp, also don't understand how media companies operate and their role in society. Um, Long time ago, Chris Mitchell, the editor-in-chief of The Australian, was very negative about social media right from the start, and he described Twitter as the dunny door of journalism. Um, and I think in some ways, weirdly enough, certain aspects that have come to the fore since then, which we've been discussing, have proved him to be partially right. Okay, and what about you, Amber? Does Cracky um, kind of push you to be active on social media? What's that relationship like? It was actually interesting when we first started and launched Inc, which was the investigative unit, we were really, um, they were quite strict on the social media policy because they really wanted to promote us as being, you know, very unbiased, very radical centre, um, absolutely not really swinging one way or the other. But I think, you know, the perception has switched a little bit because Twitter is really important you know, especially for for younger journalists, for journalists with less of a presence to advertise themselves and to advertise them stories. And I think more and more we're seeing journalists um, become popular because of their commentary on that on Twitter or because of their commentary on social media. So while Crikey doesn't encourage us one way or the other, we're sort of free to do what we like. Um, I do think there are benefits to using Twitter to promote yourself. But of course, that also comes with being, you know, the risk at the risk of being pigeonholed into one ideology or subjecting yourself to online abuse. Sure. And so if we go back to um, Dan Andrews' policies, uh, I guess a lot of them are questionable, such as his stance on borders, which really became more of a human rights uh, question and issue. And if we consider that the traditional journalist's role is to hold those in power to account, aka questioning the conduct of, uh, of the health strategy, how are these kind of t- uh, Twitter trolls undermining that? I thought it was really interesting to see the way Rachel's questions were criticised versus, say, um, Jonathan Swan interview with Trump. You know, people really seemed astounded when he went out, when he interviewed Trump, at just how much he followed up questions and how many questions he was asking. Um, and then when we see journalists do that, like Rachel do that in COVID conferences, just the stark comparison between 
people's opinions on on what journalists' roles is was was really interesting. But um, I, I do think it it makes finding information a lot harder when there's just this massive pile on online. I also thought that with Rachel in particular, she was present at a press conference with a whole bunch of other journalists and they were questioning the premiere. So that was part of the journalism process. It wasn't the end point of that process because Rachel was going to take the information that the premiere supplied in answers to her and fashion that into a story. But because a lot of Melburnians who were locked down and had not really been exposed to how journalism worked were for the first time seeing a live press conference and seeing a bunch of journalists uh, seemingly quite aggressively questioning their premier, that they reacted really strongly to that. And it was like they were seeing the, the rough draft, if you like, or a midpoint of the journalistic process and mistaking that for the end output. Whereas people more familiar with the process who'd been in press conferences, but it didn't really matter who they were, knew that out of that raw material, something would be fashioned. So I think the criticism of that from a lot of people were because they didn't have a strong understanding that understanding that was just part of the process. I think that's really well put. I think another aspect of it was just the heightened sensitivity during that particular period in Melbourne. Um, the fact that we were going through something that, for what want of a better word, was was largely unprecedented. The fact that um, you know people's people's lives and livelihoods were on the line to some extent, and I think that did mean that um, there was, particularly from people who who, as Stephen said, don't really understand journalism and how it works, any perception um, that you were even questioning. Uh, you know, what the government was saying about what we needed to do uh, to protect the health of Victorians was seen as somehow undermining uh, the, the the health message. Um, and I think to some extent the government kind of used, tried, tried to suggest that as well. It was kind of part of the government's spin. Uh, and I think that did make our job as journalists a bit more difficult because I think there were completely legitimate questions to ask that and 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 I don't think anyone you know in the in the Victorian gallery was trying to sort of you know uh undermine the health of the health of the state but I think there were you know very important questions that needed to be asked about you know whether um whether mistakes had been made in various areas and and you know whether every every policy was um be, was operating you know as it should have Sure. Okay. And as well as the Dan stands, uh, there were also plenty of critics of Dan Andrews' policy uh, on Twitter, brandishing hashtags like Dictator Dan. And research published by Media International Australia found that half of the accounts, 54% of accounts, posting anti-Andrews hashtags were bot accounts. Um, uh, to give the impression of greater support for their agenda than uh, what actually existed at the time. And you also have far-right activists with small followings who use mainstream conservative media like Sky News uh, to amplify their message. So we have bot accounts and these far-right activist accounts um, all being amplified by mainstream media and amplifying this uh, disinformation in a kind of feedback loop. So does that concern you? 
That's a really tough one. This morning, Facebook announced that it was going to stop encouraging um, people to view political platforms or they were going to stop recommending political groups permanently just because of, of what's happening. These bots appearing and, and, you know, these accounts really trying to push agendas and the danger that that brings. Um, it is really interesting because it's, it's a huge question to try and tackle. We've also seen... Uh, you know, just recently after the the capital siege, we saw a lot of right-wing commentators like Miranda Devine and Daisy Cousins try to move to online platforms like Gab and Parler because they just thought they were being censored too much when the social media giants did step in to try and regulate this kind of troll farming um, or this, this, you know, huge right-wing, very inflammatory statements. Um, but, but that didn't work either. Both of the platforms... Um, couldn't couldn't hold that you know these huge audiences or couldn't moderate them so it's a big question as to what we're supposed to do about it and i think that it has been a mess ever since these place these platforms have come into being we talk about social media as if it is a, a media channel but we've got to remember that these are corporations it's not like facebook is like radio which is a medium that is regulated by government and you have to apply for a license to be on it Pretty much anyone, if they're old enough, can sign on to Facebook. But for a long time, Facebook's been incredibly effective at dodging any of the normal regulations that the media falls under, most particularly in the laws of defamation and libel. Because if you post something that's defamatory on Facebook, Facebook doesn't get sued. uh, But you can, uh, media publishers can be sued. Media publishers can even be sued for the comments that other people put under articles they've posted, comments that these media organisations have no control over because they're not allowed to pre-moderate. This is something that is concerning Joe Biden, and there's a rule in the US called Section 230 that is a piece of legislation that prevents companies like Facebook from being sued. He wants to remove that. So that could completely change the landscape for all these organizations, Twitter as well. Another point I wanted to make about that is because in the absence of external regulations, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter have all tried to internally regulate. And you can see in the latter years of the Trump presidency, they became more and more strident about attaching labels and warnings on Trump's messages, uh, fact-checking them until they took the step of, I think they called it permanently suspending Trump's account, which in my mind was a ban. But anyway, uh, so which uh, also seemed in the eyes of many people to be an unsatisfactory manoeuvre. So I imagine that Facebook and Twitter could remove all these bots if they so wanted to and I think if you write a letter to the editor of my newspaper, The Age, you have to be identified publicly and you have to be verifiably identified. I think it would be a great idea if Twitter adopted a compulsory verification to prove who you are, because I think that that would um, kill off A, a lot of the abuse, and B, a lot of the misinformation. But it seems to be a self-regulatory step that that platform is unwilling to undertake. Yeah, I, I can only really agree. I think that um, one of the greatest challenges of our time is 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 working out how to combat disinformation. 
uh, and you know, I, I suppose um, f- uh, until the advent of social media, uh, you know, that was that was done, and it wasn't always perfect done done perfectly. Uh, I guess by legacy media organisations. Uh, now everyone is able to to communicate things, but there are no checks and balances for for, for whether or not it's correct and. Um, it's, I mean, that freedom to some extent is wonderful that people don't necessarily, you know, have to have to um, get themselves into the position of being a journalist or a prominent public figure to, to um, get their views out there. But, um, but the downside of it is that, you know, very often what's communicated is utter nonsense and sometimes it's difficult to distinguish fact from fiction. Okay, so as you all say, there's no shortage of fi- uh, fingers being pointed at social media. Um, and the problems we see here are also happening in the United States, as you mentioned, Stephen. But I wonder how much of the blame also rests with the mainstream media, even if we think about Trump and, and him using the platform and, and how much media coverage he got and kind of the mainstream media just using whatever tweet he, you know, he'd posted that day as a way to attract audiences, giving the public the news they want to click on and share sounds good in theory, but it hasn't really worked out that way. Is that a lost battle as well? I think it's very clear that Trump was good for the media. It was definitely good for Twitter, for the inflammatory tweets that he would put out, but he also generated an enormous amount of news because what the President of the United States said counted. And I think even if he had remained on Twitter, his tweets would be getting a lot less prominence because he's lost his power. Uh, So it's an outlandish claim, but uh, one tweet that could reset the diplomatic relations around the world or could inflame China, it's just not going to happen anymore. Uh, It was also very good for a lot of mainstream media outlets who were seen as being very liberal, such as Vanity Fair and the New York Times, which saw subscriptions surge under Trump from people who opposed him and his message. What I think you'd find in Australia, and I think the ABC would say this, as well as commercial organisations such as Nine, which owns The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, where I work, is that they've been given an enormous amount of traffic and subscriptions for two big news stories. One a year ago, the bushfires, and then covid last year uh, and into this year. And that's because they were fast moving, constantly changing stories that demanded your attention and you didn't know what was going to happen next. So bushfire updates on live blogs for websites were enormously popular with readers because they had to find out what was happening. The ABC would say the same thing about its emergency bushfire coverage. People were glued to it and in country areas in New South Wales and Victoria really did make the difference between saving lives and lives lost. A similar focus on COVID live blogs because the information kept changing and it was information that could really determine in a very important and direct way how you would be living your lives over the next couple of months or even over the next day. How many cases had been diagnosed? How many people am I allowed to have over to my house on the weekend? Can I go out to dinner this weekend at a restaurant? Can I get across the border? I can remember on December 30 going to a party in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales and people were worried about the outbreak and were heading for the New South Wales Victorian border 
bright and early the next morning because they feared correctly, as it turned out, that Victoria was about to shut its border. So given that there was so much news that would really directly impact on the lives of people, I think that has, that has been, in fact, more significant than shouting messages on social media, definitely over the past 12 months. I think that's been something that's been quite refreshing about this year is that there have been stories and I think the bushfires and COVID are are a great example but um, I'm also heartened by the fact that um, our politics live blog um, largely focused on Canberra but with bits and pieces of state politics tied in as well Um, and that alongside our COVID blog are generally the things on the website that that get the most readers and the most attention because as Stephen says it's constantly updated and generally that is you know pretty straight news it's just you know what someone's just got up and said in parliament or um or at a press conference or or in the case of of COVID you know the latest facts and figures um on case numbers and and hotel quarantine and so on uh and I I think that has been quite heartening that that it, it is just you know providing a service, providing that factual information that people people need rather than, um, you know, the sensational stuff that sometimes does get clicks and and I suppose, you know, um, as Julia seemed to be suggesting, gives, gives the mainstream media a bad name. It has been interesting to see just throughout 2020 just how people's appetite for media and for news has grown. It's just... It's been almost exponential. Crikey is a is a very small organisation, but we saw this year a huge uptick in traffic and in subscribers um, because I think people were confused about what was happening. They didn't trust what they were seeing, so they were turning to traditional media outlets for the cold hard facts. Okay, guys, I'm wary of the time, so just to wrap up, um, all three of you are currently on Twitter and seeing the last 12 months we've all been through, it was pretty tough. Um, I'm interested to know what would be the tipping point for each of you personally to leave the platform? I think I'm on my way. I am unfollowing a lot of people who I find are repetitive or engaging in trivia. Um, I'm finding it less useful as a news source in terms of my column, although I do still feel that it is useful in terms of broad overview and scanning the news and finding out the big stories if you don't have incredible visibility of them. But let's remember, we survived for centuries as effective journalists without Twitter, and I have no doubt we could do so again. I think we could. I think my job would be a lot more difficult uh, if, if without Twitter. Uh, I think there will probably there have been and there will be times where I have to moderate my my use of it. Um, I think if I ever stopped doing my current job or stopped being a journalist, I'd I'd quit Twitter immediately. Uh, and I'm looking I'm having a month off in March um, and very much looking forward to not being on Twitter for that entire time. <laughs> but but it does have its benefits. I do have to reluctantly admit. I'd have to agree with Rachel that if I left media or journalism, there is very little chance I would be on Twitter afterwards. I think as well, it's a bit different. I'm I'm not very active on Twitter. I'm I'm not very present uh, present, but it does Twitter does have an entertainment value to it. There are a lot of jokes. There are some interesting stories. Um, and I think if if that stopped and if it turned, you know, into more polarizing debate or just more abuse, that's when I would I would leave. Okay, great. Uh, Well, that's the end of the show. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for your time on the Fourth Estate. 
Okay. Thanks, for Thanks a lot. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks to my guests, investigative reporter from Crikey, Amber Schultz, Stephen Brook, a CBD columnist for The Age, and Rachel Baxendale, Victorian political reporter for The Australian. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And if you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It helps us know what you like and it helps other people find the show. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Julia Karkatzel. You can catch us next week on Fourth Estate. 